And please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Hebrews. We're going to continue our exposition of Hebrews. We're going to consider verses, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Uh, but I will begin the reading at uh, Hebrews 6, verse 20, so that we may remind ourselves of where we have come. So Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20. Please give your attention once again to the reading of God's holy word, Hebrews 6.20. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation, king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they can't come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may uh, so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray for the preaching. O our Father in heaven, we come to a text that is quite challenging and uh, one where the apostle would uh, anticipate that we should be already uh, dining on meat instead of milk. And so we pray, Father, that your spirit would open our eyes, that you would help the minister preach in a way that the people of God would comprehend the great glory and great greatness of Jesus Christ and give your spirit as well to the congregation that will hear this word, that they would have their uh, ears opened and their eyes opened to the greatness of our Savior. And so, Father, as we come before the Word of God preached, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to help grasp the enormity of an object size, you need a reference object next to it. For instance, if I showed you a picture of the sun, just suspended in the blackness of space, you would not really be able to grasp its greatness. But if I were to put next to it then a scale photo of the earth, which was nothing more than a speck in comparison, you would suddenly now, knowing the size of our planet, you would see the greatness and the grandeur of the sun. And if I put next to the earth then, a a scale photo of something that you may be familiar with, maybe the Empire State Building, which would probably vanish in a scale photo. You wouldn't see anything of it. Your mind 
would struggle to grasp the size of our sun. If you've ever, for instance, been at the base of a great skyscraper, whether it's the Empire State Building or, or, or anything else, and you look up and, and your stomach starts to turn as you look at the stories above you and you grasp this thing is massive and large, but then you recognize, well, it's nothing compared to the earth. And then it's absolutely nothing compared to the sun as well. And, and then the wonder of the magnitude of our star's size starts to hit us. But when you only see our sun hung in the blackness of space, you would not understand its greatness. You need a reference object. Well, in our text, the apostle does something similar, not with the sun, but with the son of God. He stacks Christ's person and office next to other great figures in the Bible. And he does it to show us the greatness of Christ's priesthood over Levi. He brings in several men as reference. He first takes Levi as a kind of baseline reference. Then he puts Abraham next to Levi, showing Abraham is even greater than Levi. Then he puts Melchizedek next to Abraham, showing him even greater. But then he puts the Son of God, Jesus Christ, next to Melchizedek, showing that he is greatest of them all, so that we may grasp a bit of Jesus' superiority over all these men, so that we find that Levi is not even close to the top rung, but he is really at the very bottom of all these men. Just as you think of it, you were probably astonished, right, with the Empire State Building size. If you've ever been there and you look up to its spire and you see that it is great and it towers over you and you're just, you feel so very small compared to it until you see the sun above it. But you don't recognize the greatness of the sun unless you have seen it in its scale and its grandeur and you have completely missed the point you are mar- you marvel at the Empire State Building and its height, but towering above it is the sun in all its radiance and splendor. And you've missed it because you don't know how to compare these objects. And so we can miss where Jesus fits in the Bible. We can miss that he is the greatest figure of all. And you will miss the greater grandeur of the Son of God when you see his name throughout the Scripture until you look at these other great men of the Bible and compare him to them. You know that the problem for the Hebrews was that they were tempted to leave Jesus Christ and his greatness for Levi and his order. And what the apostle is doing is by showing us how Jesus stacks up, he is telling them, you should in no way run back to Levi when you have Christ. And that's the whole point of this text, that we are to be in awe of the exceeding greatness of Jesus' person and priesthood. And that the Hebrews and ourselves would be saved from apostasy by this understanding. So our theme is that the greatness of Melchizedek reveals the greatness of Jesus Christ's priesthood. And we'll consider this theme under just two heads tonight. First is Christ's likeness to Melchizedek. And second is Christ's superiority over Levi. First, Christ's likeness to Melchizedek. Now, by way of reminder, you remember that the apostle had to pause this discourse on Melchizedek back in chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 10, he began this discourse that he had to put on pause. He said, Jesus was called of God an high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But then he mournfully said these words, remember that, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. He paused because he had to exhort them to grow in the word. 
to grow in meat and not milk. And he returns now to Melchizedek after such exhortations. And the things he now writes are truly the matters of meat and not milk. And I'll just say, beloved, as we come into this text, the things he now writes of are truly matters of meat. They require our attention. And there are some difficulties to overcome in the text, but they are worthy of our diligence and attention and effort to resolve them. These matters are revealed to us that through the scriptures that you might have hope in Christ. And so these things are necessary that God's children would revel in Christ's priesthood, that you would know who you can go to and who intercedes for you relentlessly, who never stops, that you would have an unshakable confidence in the one who sits at God's right hand when you stack him up against all the other possibilities that there is, that you would know, and how you would know, that there is a great ministry conducted in the heavens, whether you wake or sleep, whether you live or die. By this means, you can attain to what chapter 6 exhorted us to have, which is a full assurance of hope. You can know, if you understand these deep things of God, you will know for sure you will make it to glory, that Satan and sin will not devour you, That because of Jesus' unchanging and everlasting priesthood, His ministry of intercession that never ends and never fails, you will make it to glory. To grow in meat then, friends, is to grow to gain a higher and deeper sense of assurance of salvation. You see, as you investigate why the plain truths of the Bible are so, through the deep things of God, you find great wonder in the glorious mechanisms by which a very simple truth, right, that we hold on to for dear life, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. How do you know thou shalt be saved? For a certain, if you don't know these deep things of God, hope will grow strong when you you sink your spiritual teeth in the meat of the word. And you will know for a certain, yes, belief on the Lord Jesus Christ will absolutely save me. So with that encouragement, let us now consider Melchizedek as he arises in our text again. You know that the Bible says very little about this man. He is a mysterious figure in some ways. You can survey what we know of him in the scriptures. His person is encountered only once in the Bible. You remember this, boys and girls, after Abram frees Lot. Melchizedek meets Abram and blesses him. I'll read Genesis 14, 18 through 20 to remind you. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Uh, Listen to how many times that phrase is uttered. The priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. This is what we know of Abram, of Melchizedek in the scripture, narratively speaking. And that narrative forms the basis of the apostles' teaching. And you find its echoes, you've probably heard it already throughout our text. But then after Genesis 14, there's a great silence concerning Melchizedek. He's not mentioned until David uh, pens Psalm 110, which we sang just now in verse 4. And you know that in Psalm 110, David prophesies of his greater son to come. He prophesies of the Messiah, the Christ. 
The psalm, which is well known, it begins with, we didn't sing this portion, but it begins with, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Remember Jesus cited that in Matthew uh, twenty-two forty-one, and Peter cited it in Acts two thirty-four. Why did they cite that text? To show that David's son, being David's Lord, must precede David and must be God. As Peter preached after he said this, God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. But also, for our text purposes, in Psalm 110, its fourth verse, The Lord hath sworn, and will not repent, thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. He shows us that the Christ, that the Messiah to come, would be a priest of not Levi's order, but of Melchizedek's order. So that's the next mention. And then the final mention of Melchizedek in the Bible is throughout the book of Hebrews and part of the discourse that we are now a part of. Well, with that brief survey behind us, let's consider our third verse in chapter 7, speaking of Melchizedek, who was without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now, the phrase you want to consider is made like unto the Son of God. That phrase teaches you how to handle Melchizedek, that he is a type of Jesus Christ. He was a shadow of Christ to point us to Jesus Christ to come. And, you know, technically the terms are type and antitype. If he is the type, Christ is the antitype. He is the one who fulfills what Melchizedek portends. Melchizedek was not the Son of God. Right? Some consider his appearance in Genesis 14 to be a Christophany, uh, thinking he was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. But our text makes it clear Melchizedek was made like unto the Son of God. He was typological of Christ, so that his mysterious person would reveal something of the Son of God's person and office for us. But the thrust of verse 3 here, and this is really the basis of what we need to understand tonight, is that Melchizedek, like the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. That's the key here. That's the theme the apostle wants to drill into you in our text, which is the continual priesthood, the never-ending priesthood of Jesus Christ, and how that is far superior to the Levitical priesthood that the uh, Hebrews were tempted to return to. That's how our discourse also began in uh, chapter 6, verse 20. Right? Uh, it was rebooted, so to speak, in chapter 6, verse 20, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The forever priesthood of Melchizedek is the interpretive key for our text. And that is where the Holy Ghost takes this up from Psalm 110, verse 4, where we sang that Christ is to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, you want to think of the context of that song. In its first verse, it established that Christ is God, right? And then it ties that together here into the order of Melchizedek, which, of course, if the Messiah is God, he must be a priest forever, as he is eternal. That's the genius of our text tonight, is it ties Psalm 110 and then to understand Genesis 14, uses Psalm 110 verse 4 as the glue 
between all these texts to illuminate the doctrine of Melchizedek. And again, I hope to make these things a bit more clear as we go through uh, this text this afternoon. Well, in verse 1, the apostle reminds us of the Genesis narrative. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, Melchizedek was called a priest of the Most High God, meaning Jehovah in Genesis 14. You saw how many times that phrase was used. The Most High God is the one true God, the one living and true God. Melchizedek was not a priest of a pagan God. He was the priest of the true living God. And what that reminds us of is that true religion was known outside of Abram's family. Right? True religion was known outside of Abram's family because they all descended, all the men and women and children on the earth at the time, boys and girls, descended from who? Noah. Noah and his family, right? And so the knowledge of the true God had been diffused across the earth. And so with that, I'll put that there for a moment. What matters for us now is that Melchizedek was a priest of Jehovah long before Levi. He was a true priest of Jehovah long before Levi was ever born. Melchizedek meets Abram, and Abram is Levi's ancestor, isn't he? How does the chain go, boys and girls? Doesn't it not go from Abraham begetting Isaac and Isaac begetting Jacob and then Jacob begetting Levi? You see this? What, what he is establishing here so brilliantly is that before there was a priesthood of Levi, there was a priesthood of God in Melchizedek. So that before Levi ever comes around, men were priests of God. Melchizedek's priesthood is more ancient than Levi's and precedes and supersedes Levi's priesthood. The idea is connected to Melchizedek's person in verse 3, saying he is without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, the argument is very technical here, so please bear with me. These are matters of meat. The apostle is reminding us that the Bible reveals nothing of Melchizedek's origins. He is a man without a genealogy. That's the key. Remember that. He is a man without a genealogy. And that's unusual for an important figure in the Bible, to have no genealogy at all. Which is not to say, right, he's not making the case that the man had no father or mother. But he's saying he was born by natural generation, as we say, but he has no genealogy. Now, Paul is headed somewhere very particular concerning this. This is very peculiar for a priest because the Levitical priesthood demands a genealogy. You cannot be a priest without your genealogy. A man must prove his descent from Levi in order to be a priest of God. Boys and girls, you might remember that when men returned from the Babylonian exile, and I know that our family should know this because we have been in Nehemiah recently in family worship, that if they had no record to prove they were Levites by birth, they were forbidden from serving as priests. Nehemiah 7.64, These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore were they as polluted, put from the priesthood. And yet here is Melchizedek, without a genealogy, serving as a priest of God. Not only is it impossible for Melchizedek to descend from Levi, as Levi was yet unborn, but his order does not require a genealogy from Levi. 
as the other priests. He has none. Now it says Melchizedek has no successor. This is another he is bringing to mind. And see, this is where he was so frustrated with the, with the Hebrews. If they had known their Bible, they would understand these things. This is another limitation on the Levitical priesthood. This man has no successor. Boys and girls, I don't know if you know this, but Levites could only serve as priests for 20 years, and then they had to retire. They served from 30 years of age and retired at 50. Numbers 4.3, from 30 years old and upward, even until 50 years old, all that enter into the host to do the work in the tabernacle of the congregation. By law, by legislation, they were to have a limited duration for their ministry. But the order of Melchizedek, and we praise God for this. This is where we have to really meditate on hard things, friends. But the order of Melchizedek has no term limits. It is an open-ended priesthood, which is something that cheers the child of God when we consider our great high priest, isn't it? For Jesus is called the Son of God in our text. That is also deliberate. He uses a title of divinity, showing us and reminding us that Jesus never dies. So if this divine person has no term limits on his priesthood, his work will never end, friends. But if Jesus were a Levite, you could only have him for 20 years. Sometime around eighty fifty, his term would have expired, and you would have to find a successor. And so we praise God that unlike our presidents and the Levites, Jesus has no term limits. Because who could we find to compare to him? Could you imagine trying to find a successor for Jesus? If he had to give up his office, if another had to take his place, we would be what? We would be doomed. Nobody can intercede for us like Jesus. No one can do what the Son of God alone can do as our great high priest. God and man, the mediator of the covenant, the forgiver of our sins in his person, and a continual interceder for us as he is divine, even while he, we slumber, right? This is the continual priesthood. While we slumber, he never does. Even if we sin in our dreams, he is there interceding for us. Praise God. For behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121 verse 4. You are kept by this glorious priest. This is where, again, you would have a full assurance of hope if you knew the deep things of God and why these things matter. We are kept by our glorious high priest. In other words, our apologetic then is to those who would reject Jesus because he he is not a Levite, is to say, instead, it would be our great detriment if Jesus were a Levite. But now the Son of God of the order of Melchizedek abideth the priest continually, praise God, and this is not something the apostle is making up. He goes to Psalm 110 verse 4 saying, God has ordained this. Now do you understand the frustration the apostle had with the Hebrews? If they had known the word of God as they ought, they would never want a Levitical priest, not when they could have the Son of God. The same goes for us, friends. If we would know the word of God, it would show us that all that we need, all that we need is Jesus. In his person and in all his offices, We would run our race looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We would know that we are in continual dependence and need of the ministry of Christ. We would know that we need continually the forgiveness of our sins as we still sin day by day. We would know we need his interceding for us as Satan desires to sift us. And he does forgive and he does intercede 
Because as this text will continue to say, maybe next time we'll get to it, he ever liveth to make intercession for us, which no Levite could ever do. Again, how we attain to a full assurance of hope when we dine on the meat of the word. To see how all the doctrines of the word of God cohere together so beautifully. No man could make any of this up. Only God could decree it. Well, there is an incidental point that the apostle draws up, uh, draws out of Melchizedek. It's not one that directly relates to the theme of his priesthood, but it is still important. Melchizedek is not just a priest, but also a king. In verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Melchizedek's very name in Hebrew means king of righteousness. Melech, as you might know, means king. Sedek means righteousness. His name means in itself king of righteousness. And as Melchizedek is made unto like unto the Son of God, you see an apt portrayal of Christ here. The King of Kings is the Lord our righteousness, isn't he? And then Melchizedek is called the King of Salem, that is, the King of Peace. Salem comes from the same Hebrew root word as Shalom, the same root word as Solomon's name, and that means peace. Salem was another name for Jerusalem, Psalm 76, verse 2. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. So here you have the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And you remember the king of peace brought refreshment to Abram after his battle, right? Uh, He brought wine and bread to refresh uh, Abram, just as our king gives us strength and refreshment as we fight the good fight of faith, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And so through Melchizedek's topology, you can see Jesus Christ so clearly here. And you see that as well in Zechariah 6.13, one of the great texts that speak of his offices. You find the king of peace and the priest of peace bound together. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Kingly power and priestly blessing sit on the throne so that Jesus Christ can build his church. He shall build the temple of the Lord. And don't you hear then, then when he says, uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail because he has the power of a king and he has the atoning work of the priest. The church will be built. The saints will be ingathered and they will be forgiven of their sins. And they have everything they need in this one person. And that also means, right, as you take encouragement in that, that Jesus Christ is not just a priest by which you gain forgiveness. But this has another implication. He is also a king to be submitted to, isn't he? He must sit and rule upon the most important throne of all for you, child of God, your heart. He must be enthroned upon your heart, believer. He is both Lord and Savior. To have peace with God, you must submit to Christ. So many people just want him for a priest, but won't have him as a king. And what that means is you won't have him for a priest either. Because both offices are bound together and are not to be separated in this one person. And the beautiful thing about Christ's ministry is he freely forgives your treason against him. As you think about it, what have you done in your sin? You have sinned against the king. 
And the king of peace, the king of righteousness, has priestly power to forgive your transgressions against his own office. What a wonderful thing it is. But his kingly power requires you to submit to him. But if you do so, now you think of it, right? What a great advocate and a great power is in heaven for you, child of God. To combat sin and Satan and the world for you is Jesus Christ, son of God, enthroned at God's right hand, priest and king. Go for a free and full forgiveness, but also cheerfully submit to his rule out of thanksgiving. But before I leave this heading, I have to deal with the papacy. Because Rome tries to erect a new priesthood, don't they? Try to create a new priesthood. And in so doing, they blaspheme Christ. But they are caught in a bit of a conundrum. Because they have to defend where this new priesthood comes from. Now, she's smart enough, at least, to say that the the Levitical priests are gone, and Hebrews teaches us she cannot use Levi. So what order are her priests? It's shocking. The first time I ever heard of it, it took my heart away. She says her priests are of the order of Melchizedek. Beloved, the Bible says nothing else. Only Christ is of that order. Rome says her priests share his priesthood. But that is blasphemy. When their priests are ordained, they often sing Psalm 110, verse 4. Isn't that an awful thing? The whole point of this text is not to erect a new priesthood, but that one alone fulfills it. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and to have any man be a priest of that order is blasphemy of the highest sort. It makes you tremble at their sheer audacity. Well, with that, let's consider our second heading, which is Christ's superiority to Levi. Verse 4 gives the imperative that forms the basis of our theme this evening. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. You are called to consider. That word is consider here means to meditate. You're called to meditate on how great this man Melchizedek was. Speaking of him as a type, though, makes you is meant to make you meditate and consider the greatness of Jesus Christ, the antitype. So this is really a consideration of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Christ's greatness is what you consider by way of Melchizedek. So verse 4 reminds you that Abraham, the father of faith, gave a tithe or a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek. That reminder is, and I didn't realize it until I was really diving deep into it, and uh, uh, it just jumped out at me. The reminder that Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek is all throughout this text. It's everywhere. And it's rather important in a consideration of the superiority of Melchizedek and Christ over Levi. First, I suppose you might notice that the tithe precedes Levi and Israel, doesn't it? There is a moral basis to giving a tenth of our increase throughout the Bible. Now, this is not the point of the text or our sermon, but it's worthy to take note of. But something of the idea of Melchizedek receiving tithes shows the greatness of Jesus Christ. Let's understand the link the Holy Ghost makes here. Verse 2 reminds us that Abraham gave a tenth part or a tithe of all the spoils. Verse 5 then reminds us of the tithe under Levi, saying his sons have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. 
So, again, this is a bit of a technical argument, so I hope I can uh, illuminate it for you. Levi, you remember, took tithes from the rest of God's people, right? Of all the tribes, right? They, all the tithe, tribes paid tithes to Levi. But Levi, now this is where the link the apostle makes is so important. Levi comes from Abraham. And Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Do you see here? The Holy Ghost is bringing into focus something vital to know. And that argument can be hard to grasp, so let me give you a sense to make it easier to grip onto, that this is fundamentally an argument of subordination. Right? Abraham, you see here in verse 4, is called the patriarch of God's people. Right? He is the source, in a way. He is the ultimate father and head of God's people. He is the root of all Israel. All Israel descends from him. Levi, the text says, comes out of the loins of Abraham. And while Levi's brethren, the other 11 tribes, paid their tithes to Levi, Levi, through Abraham, was paying tithes to Melchizedek, showing us the superiority of the Melchizedek order to Levi. That becomes clear in verses 9 and 10. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. You see, the Levites might have received tithes, right? But they themselves paid tithes to Melchizedek virtually through Abraham, being in Abraham's loins, not literally, but figuratively. This is a matter of headship. As Abraham was the patriarch and superior to Levi and the root of Levi, this shows us the superiority of the order of Melchizedek over Levi. This is what the apostle is laboring to prove. Now, you might say something like this, uh, I object, pastor, on this grounds. Is Paul not overlooking something here? Jesus also descends from Abraham. So is he too then subordinate to Melchizedek? Seems like the whole argument would fall apart then, wouldn't it? That's a good question. And it would be right if Jesus' origin were human only and not divine. That's why you need Psalm 110 to shed light on this text and why Paul calls Jesus the Son of God in our text, saying, without beginning of days, to show us that he precedes Abraham in being, right? Before Abraham was, I am. You see that link here, that this is the Son of God preceding Abraham. Another reason you need Jesus Christ to be God and not just a man. In so many ways, the Bible demands the divinity of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the argument in our text, it would be self-defeating. If you were an Arian today, this whole argument falls apart because Jesus would be subordinate to Abraham. So, and you would be dead in your sins. Consider verse 8. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. Well, this is simply to say Levi and his sons, they died. They died, they died, they died. They were mortal men. But Jesus Christ lives forever and is forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek, as in Psalm 110, verse 4. Well, beloved, I know that these things, they push our minds and our understanding. And the arguments that the Holy Ghost makes are fairly technical. And you're reminded of what Peter wrote, right? Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, 
which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Second Peter 3. Certainly, this is wisdom from above given to Paul, something hard to understand, but you are called to understand it and not be dull in hearing as Hebrews 5 exhorted you. These are deep things of God that you can understand. Let me encourage you in that you can understand with time as Hebrews 5 exhorted you. These, I would just say, wrestle with God over hard texts. Push yourself, beloved, to not just be constantly drinking the milk of the word, but also be exercised into a knowledge of the mysteries of the scriptures that are revealed unto us. These are matters of the most glorious faith and praise in Christ. This text has us consider, right? Consider the greatness of Jesus Christ through this, these arguments. It is for our assurance that Jesus Christ has come to save us and save us to the uttermost. Never be content with your understanding of the Scripture. I This goes back to our Hebrews 5 text. But I, myself, every minister of God, is not to be content in what they know of Christ and the Scripture. You need to push yourself, congregation, and you will be greatly blessed. Well, the final matter we consider of Christ's greatness tonight is in verses 6 and 7. But he whose descent is not counted from them, speaking of Levi, received uh, tithes of Abraham. And blessed him that had the, the promise. Uh, and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. This is a self-evident argument. The greater blesses the lesser. The people of God, right? They were used to the, used to the Levites blessing the people. You remember the benediction, right? That they pronounced and we still receive. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. They bless the people. But what do we know of Melchizedek in Genesis 14? He is the one who blesses Abraham. And Levi was in Abraham, which means that Melchizedek is superior to Levi. And as Christ is the antitype to Melchizedek then, Christ is far greater than Levi. And that's the argument. And you hear this, and this is so wonderful, right? Melchizedek blessed he, and the apostle is so particular and precise here, he blessed he who had the promises. So this one, he blesses the, the, the man who has the promises of God. That shows truly his superiority over Abraham, doesn't it? If Abraham is the recipient of promises, who blesses the man who has the promise? And it is Jesus of the order of Melchizedek that fulfills every promise. Second Corinthians 1.20 That all the promises of God are yea and amen in him, making him greatest of all. This is it, friends. In every way, Jesus Christ's order of Melchizedek is superior. In every way. You are to consider, you are to confer, and you are to meditate on his supreme greatness. That even the blessings, right, that the Levites pronounced, ultimately you now see all came through him. Because God blesses no one unless they come to Jesus Christ. How else can sinners possibly have the smiling face of God and the peace of God that is found in the benediction? Only through Jesus. What do we read in Ephesians 1.3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings, in heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing comes from this one man, Jesus Christ, for he is our peace, as Ephesians 2.14 says. And you find how 
That is so that you have peace, right? It's the benediction gives you peace. Ephesians 2, 15 through 17, having uh, abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. Those are things a Levite could never give you. Never. The Levitical blessing only comes because Jesus has reconciled us to God by the cross. Levi could never have taken away God's enmity. Levi offered animals. We'll see a little later. Their blood could never take away our sin. But also Levi was term limited. A mere man, as were his sons. But our Jesus Christ did not just give up his life on the cross as we heard this morning, right? The glory of this text is that he is now in the heavens and he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And that is the majesty and wonder and glory of an eternal, never-ending priesthood. That's why all of this will come to a head at the end of the chapter. What is the use of all this knowledge? See, he's making a technical argument for the sake that you would have great hope. But at the end, what is the use of all this that you have assurance of? Well, you can go down in chapter 7, verse 25, and it is this. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. That is the use. And now, instead of this just being wishful thinking, now you know the mechanism, and now you know the design that causes these things to be so that you would have a full assurance of hope that these things are true. You need a reminder of this. I need a reminder of this too, that Jesus is able to save me to the uttermost if I have come unto God by him. I don't save myself. Nobody else saves me. Only Jesus Christ saves me. And I'm held and kept by the power of God through faith in him and by him. He saves to the uttermost, to the uttermost. He does not save a little bit. And I do the rest, right? That's Arminianism. That's Roman Catholicism. But it is not the Bible. He saves to the uttermost. He does all of it. Jesus does it all. We are kept by his power and his work. And it is for that cause the Bible says you can be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 Could you imagine... That verse would never exist if Jesus were term limited. That confidence arises and arises as you consider the deep revelations of God. Never, ever stop considering the greatness of Jesus. Stack him up next to Abraham, to Levi, to Moses, to David, to Mary, to Paul and the holy angels. And you will find like the sun in its radiance overshadows the Empire State Building. Your awe for Jesus Christ will grow and grow. And though you are not to worship the Son, you are to worship the Son of God and how your worship will deepen as you consider his greatness. Amen. Please rise for prayer as we leave Hebrews there for tonight. Oh, what a glorious thing, our Father in heaven, to know that you have set at your right hand our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have set him there, that he would save us to the uttermost. You have given him an invincible and eternal life 
no end of days, that we would always have an advocate before the throne of God. We bless you for this truth. And we confess before you that we are not in the habit of meditating and wrestling on the deep things of God, that we would have a full assurance of this hope. And so, Father, forgive us of that. Help us to consider the greatness of Jesus Christ. Help us to consider his greatness, that we would give glory to you, Father, and that we would have a full assurance of hope. Father, if any here do not know the Savior, we pray that the the Son of God, by his Holy Spirit, would give them the faith to believe the word of God tonight, and that they would know that in the heavens is Jesus Christ, Son of God, ever living and interceding for them, and that they, where he is, they will be also. Give all your people this assurance of great hope. We pray and ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.